Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In a room not far from where I now sit is a vault holding one of the most important books in the library's collection. It is also one of the most important and perhaps underappreciated texts in American constitutional history, and it belonged to George Washington. It is called the Acts of Congress. In the fall of 1789, Washington ordered a printed copy of the Constitution along with the laws passed by the first federal Congress. A bookbinder bound the printed sheets in leather, and to the front cover he added the words, President of the United States. Now, Washington wasn't known for writing in his books. He was not like the argumentative John Adams or Alexander Hamilton, two men who wrote copious notes in the margins of their texts. But the Spartan words that Washington did write next to key passages in his copy of the Constitution speak volumes. They reveal much about how Washington interpreted the Constitution, the powers of the presidency, and his own authority as president in the new republic. In our own time, we wrestle with questions about the Constitution's meaning. Is it a document fixed in time to be understood as its framers and the American people understood it in the 18th century, or is it a living, flexible document responsive to historical change? Washington's answers to these questions may surprise you. On today's episode, Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky of the White House Historical Association helps us understand George Washington's Constitution. She is the author of a recently published article in which she is the first to make sense of Washington's careful notations. If you'd like to see these notations for yourself, we'll have a link to a digitized copy of the Acts of Congress on our webpage. Like Dr. Kate Brown on last week's episode, Dr. Javinsky was here at Mount Vernon to teach as part of Mount Vernon's Teachers Institute. She stopped by to help us make sense of Washington's Constitution and what it meant for Americans in the early years of the Republic. And just as Dr. Brown introduced us to her dog, Hamilton, You'll get to hear from Dr. Javinsky about her pup, John Quincy Dog Adams. Today's conversation is part three of our Explorations in Early American Law miniseries. Be sure to check out parts one and two featuring Drs. Nicola Phillips and Kate Brown, and stay tuned for next week's episode with Dr. Jessica Lowe. She'll help us to make sense of an early American murder in the Shenandoah Valley. All right, Dr. C., Shall we get started? We shall. So we're going to talk about a variety of things today, including um, what you've been up to with the Teachers Institute this morning, uh, your very fascinating article on the Acts of Congress, this wonderful bound volume that we have here, the Mount Vernon Collections, and your work at the White House Historical Association. But, um, you know, we... I just talked to Dr. Kate Brown um, about two or three hours ago, and we concluded that podcast by talking about her dog, Hamilton. So let's, um, let's begin this one by talking about your dog, Quincy. Yes. So John Quincy Dog Adams is my American foxhound, Quincy for short. For those of you who are up to date on your dog breed knowledge, you know that George Washington created the American Foxhound, mm. which is very appropriate for where we are. Um, he bred English foxhounds with French hounds that he received as a gift from the Marquis de Lafayette and created the American Foxhound breed, which I actually didn't know until after I got Quincy. Um, mm-hmm. He was a rescue, and so it was just meant to be in every way. Um, Quincy is phenomenal. He has his own Instagram and often gets dressed up against his will in historical costumes. I do often see pictures of him on the National Mall. So he's yes. he's a patron of our public spaces here in Washington, D.C. Yes, he very much appreci- appreciates the green space. He's also been to the Mount Vernon Estate and is quite fond of it as well. 
plenty of places to run around here. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's where his ancestors really were. So yeah. I think he, he has that sense of the He's space. communing with the spirits, he is. you might say. Yeah, well, he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always a delight to see Quincy and see you, obviously. Um, so it's been a few years since you were on this show. Um, let's, let's see, the last time you were on the show, you were still a PhD candidate at the University of California, Davis. You were kind of on what I sort of refer to as the lost missions where the before the equipment upgrades in the studio indeed revolutionized indeed. the podcast. But now you've come back to us at the turn of the tide. And so give us a little bit of an update on your life since we last saw you. Well, it's been a busy couple of years. Um, I completed my dissertation, which I was working on at the time, mm-hmm. and I had spoken about with Doug, and um, so completed the dissertation and then did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, and then turned the dissertation into a book, Um, rewrote it actually twice, which I don't recommend doing as a general practice, but (laughs) I think the book is better for it, and turned the book in and then got a job at the White House Historical Association. And so now I am back in D.C. and very happy to be here. So it's been um, been all over the country the last couple of years doing lots of different interesting things, but it has it has gone well. Good. And so this morning, well, I guess we should say your book comes out. Yes. So my book is called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. It comes out on April 1st, 2020 with Belknap Press, which is an imprint of Harvard University Press. And I was very excited last week to see that it is available for pre-order on Amazon. That made it feel very real mm-hmm. in a way that some other, you know, milestones maybe yeah. wouldn't feel. Seeing it, seeing it on Amazon was a pretty exciting moment. And you got the cover. And I got the cover, which is not yet on Amazon, but is um, is online, and it's beautiful, and I'm very excited about it. So this morning, you were guest lecturing in our Teacher Institute. Uh, what did you talk about? Well, I um, have the great privilege to speak to the teachers about inventing the presidency. And as uh, the first president, George Washington really created, we know that he created a lot of precedents, but he did a lot more than that in that he created a scaffolding and a structure for future precedents that really, um, in a way that people don't necessarily understand because so little was written about what the president would actually do on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. How would he interact with other citizens? How would he have private events and public events? How would the president interact with the other branches of government? How would he oversee domestic issues and diplomatic issues? And how would he sort of govern day-to-day within the executive branch? These were all really important things that Washington had to figure out and had to set in place structures when there really wasn't a model for him to follow and there weren't any written guidelines. If you look at Article 2 of the Constitution, it's incredibly short. Mm-hmm. So he was really kind of flying blind with this issue, and there was so much pressure on every decision. So my talk looks at how he set up the social structure, how he set up the relationship with the other branches of government, and how he set up a basically a workflow mm-hmm. within the executive branch. Um, this is, uh, I think, the third time I've had the privilege of speaking with teachers at the Mount Vernon Teacher Institute, and I love it. It's a it's a really fun way to engage with educators and 
they're such an interested and passionate audience, which is always really mm-hmm. wonderful. And so it's been a long time since I've been in grade school, but, but what sense do you get from essentially your students this morning? How are, how are young people learning these days, and how are they learning about the presidency and, and the formation of this institution? Well, I think that um, it obviously depends on the teacher and it depends on the grade because we can get into some of the more intricate details of the presidency and the laws and the legislation and the Constitution as people get older. But I'm always really blown away by Mm -hmm. how the teachers approach Washington and teaching the early government and the complexity that they bring, even at really young ages, Mm -hmm. and the way that the creative way that they think about um, teaching these issues, it, it really blows my mind. Yeah. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is actually some of the subject of, the, of your book, but, but more specifically how Washington uh, art, in, interprets the Constitution and articulates a, a political theory of power uh, through his examination of uh, not only his experiences that he's had thus far once he takes office, he's dealing with a lot, and as you said, trying to figure out just what the heck he's supposed to do. But mm-hmm. he's also reading the Constitution pretty intently and trying to understand the presidency's place within Article Two, but also within the larger ecosystem mm-hmm. of the Constitution at the time. So you recently have published a piece in Law and History Review centered on this thing called the Acts of Congress. So what what... What are the acts of Congress? It sounds self-evident, but it's it's actually it's not. A, a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's not really what you would expect it to be. So, um, after Washington's first year, first sort of session in office, mm-hmm. Congress convenes in the fall of 1789, and um, they've passed this whole series of laws that have really started to fluff out some of the fuzzy details of what the government is going to look like. So, for example, some of the laws they have passed include creating the executive governments, creating the Department of State, creating the Department of Treasury. All of these things aren't in the Constitution, and first Congress passes them. So Congress leaves, Congress goes um, on vacation, and Washington decides to have the Constitution and all of the acts of Congress passed in this first session bound into a single volume and he has several copies of this volume made. He has one for him, one for Chief Justice John Jay. Um, I think he had one for each of the department secretaries, although they do not all exist. Mm-hmm. So he puts in this order. Uh, we know based on his records that he picked it up probably sometime in late October of 1789. And he had a... Uh, a label put on the front that said President of the United States copy of the Acts of Congress. Mm -hmm. And he referred to it as the Acts of Congress. So that's now what we all call it, even though for us the big feature piece is actually the Constitution in the front. And what made this document remarkable is that Washington wrote, made a number of notations in the margins of the Constitution. And Unlike some of his contemporaries, like John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, he wasn't <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't known for scribbling in yeah. his books. It was not something he did, and so these notations were not mindless. They were not scribbles. They were very intentional. And um, I didn't know this document existed mm-hmm. until I came here as a fellow in the fall of 2015. 
Uh, I think a lot of people don't know that it exists because it was in private hands until 2012 when the association, when Mount Vernon Ladies Association bought it. And what I argue in this article is that these notations actually reveal a lot about Mm -hmm. Washington's political theory and his developing ideas about presidential authority in a way that we don't necessarily think of when we think of Washington because he didn't write the Federalist Papers right. and he didn't write the Massachusetts State Constitution like John Adams did and he didn't write the Declaration of Independence like Thomas Jefferson did. But that doesn't mean he wasn't thinking about mm-hmm. political theory and it doesn't mean he wasn't thinking about presidential authority. We just don't necessarily have a written record or I would say we don't have a written record until now. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at those notations um, – for listeners, there are some great images on the website that show these notations. You mm-hmm. can look at them um, yourself, but they reveal a lot to us about what he was thinking about at this time. And this is a very important moment in Washington's presidency because um, I think he probably made these notations as he was getting ready to write his first, what we now call the State of the Union Address. Um, We don't know when he made these notations because he didn't write down a date. Um, If I could go back in time and ask him to put dates on his notations, that would be really marvelous. But (laughs) it would be so convenient. (laughs) Uh, But he didn't didn't do that. So um, the reason I think that he made these notations at this point, and I actually want to give a hat tip right now to Doug because he was the one that first gave me. Doug Bradburn, yes. First gave me this idea. Um, We know he got the volume in the late fall of 1789. And we know that he purchased additional volumes each year after each Mm -hmm. session of Congress. So this volume quickly became outdated. So there's basically a six-month period of time when this was the most up-to-date volume. I don't see why he would have gone back and made notations in the first volume as he, like, late in the later years when he had a a new version. And I think the most likely time is probably when he is sitting there preparing his State of the Mm -hmm. Union address because he's going back to the Constitution. He can't Google it. Keep in mind, he can't like Wikipedia, what does Article (laughs) 2 say? So he's going back and he's looking at Article 2 and he's saying, what are my requirements for this State of the Union address? Mm -hmm. And he makes a series of notations, some of which say required, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things he writes next to the State of the Union. And some of the things... In Article 2, Section 2, he makes a little bracket, and it says President Powers. And Article 2, Section 2 is a very important section because that is a section that says that the president may request written opinions from the department secretaries and will the, that the Senate will advise and consent mm-hmm. on treaties. So that's a big article. So let's – and we're going to come back, I think, to each of those because they're really significant in how – your interpretation of how Washington is is understanding his powers under the Constitution, but then also mm-hmm. how he essentially expands mm-hmm. the bounds of his own authority under the Constitution. But let's back up a little bit and talk about how Washington develops notions of executive authority or constitutional authority, say beginning in the in the sure. imperial crisis and in the war years. Sure. How do, how does he thinking about that, and how, and how does he bring that to the table mm-hmm. in seventeen eighty nine? So it's really important for me to say that at any point in his entire public career, with the exception of maybe 1798, he always believes that civilian authority is higher than military authority. Mm -hmm. 
So even when he wants there to be more executive power, he always means civilian authority. Um, And from very early on in the war, Washington starts to realize that initially the Continental Congress is set up in sort of a very loose fashion. They create ad hoc committees to deal with any issue as it arises. This quickly spirals out of control, and there are dozens and dozens of committees, including committees to reform committees, um, which has to be one of the best named (laughs) committees um, (laughs) in history. And uh, it was a very inefficient governing system, as you can well imagine, because you had no um, institutional memory. You had no long-term experience. Anyone who has tried to make a group decision about anything knows how complicated and convoluted that can be. And so trying to manage a war effort, which in and of itself is incredibly complex because you have 13 states and you have international negotiations and you have an army that you have to feed and clothe and supply and trying to do that through a series of committees was a disaster. And so very quickly, very early on, Washington is saying we need more centralized authority. Mm -hmm. We need one person that is going to oversee some of these issues so that they can make quick, decisive actions and they can make sure that these supplies are getting to the army. Because that was really his concern is, Mm -hmm. I cannot fight a war if my soldiers don't have shoes. Right. And I cannot fire a war if they don't have anything to put in their guns and fire them. So, I mean, very simple stuff. And so he is pushing for centralized authority and Initially, that means they want standing committees to oversee things like the war effort. And then they want one person running those committees because if one person is running it, then maybe they're going to be a little bit more organized. And by the end of the war, what they had was basically a standing committee for the financial department and a standing committee for the war department. And by that point, people had sort of made the compromise that, okay, yes, we're willing to comp- we're willing to centralize the authority a little bit in return for a more efficient system. Mm-hmm. Um, but even as he was leaving, Washington writes an address to the governors of the states, and he urges them to consider additional reform. And one of the big pieces of reform that he wants is centralized authority. And he really believes that it needs to be executive authority because mm-hmm. at this point, basically by the end of the war, Washington has a pretty low opinion of what Congress can accomplish. Sure. Just because there's so much turnover and there's squabbling among the states and there's factional interests. And so he thinks there really needs to be a centralized executive authority. And all of his life experience up until that point has sort of confirmed that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, The Confederation period did nothing to disabuse him of that notion. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> it was fun for everybody in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Confederation period, the economy was a nightmare, and uh, Congress had no – they could basically request funds from the states, but they had no way to enforce payment. Yeah. And so the states could say, no thanks, or we would rather keep the money for ourselves, or I'll pay when Massachusetts pays, or I'll pay when this state pays, but we're not going to until that point. <laughs> Um, so the economy was in shambles. Congress had no authority. Congress had no money. Um, naturally, when the country was in that state, foreign nations weren't particularly inclined to view the United States as a power worth reckoning. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't really have any desire to enter into so, uh, trade negotiations or respect national boundaries. Or, I mean, any anything that you would think that would be required in diplomacy. Um, so the Confederation was sort of a mess. 
And sounds like the Confederation period was run by a bunch of millennials. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know their opinions about avocado toast. <laughs> but um, yes, what is the toast of the day in seventeen eighty four? Huzzah! Um, <laughs> that was the toast of the day. Yeah. So um, well done. <laughs> Tip of the hat to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so. Uh, the Confederation was sort of a, a mess, and Washington was very supportive of reform efforts, um, although he did sort of have to be... <laughs> we need to stop for a case of the giggles yeah, here. Yeah. Oh, no, we're leaving this part in. <laughs> um, Alice and I just had this picture of Hamilton going, this isn't the toast I ordered. <laughs> or better yet, try... If you've ever, like, ordered a really big avocado toast at a restaurant, try imagine eating that with the dentures that they had in their mouths at the time. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. That's a good image yeah. for you for the rest yeah. of the day, too. Um, <laughs> there you go, folks. Early American avocado <laughs> indentures. Um, so <laughs> so the Confederation period's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Confederation period is a mess, and Washington was very supportive of reform efforts, although he did kind of have to be dragged kicking and screaming initially to go mm-hmm. to the Constitutional Convention in he was kind of, he was like, I've done my bit for... for well, not king and country at this point, but yeah. for Republican country. I mean, he had a lot of different concerns. One, he was tired. He didn't want to leave Mount Vernon. And yeah. if you've ever visited the back veranda and looked out on the river, you can understand why. Pretty nice view. It's a pretty nice view. Um, he didn't want to leave Mount Vernon. He hadn't been, he hadn't gone home. He had been home the entire, the entirety of the war. He was home one night. He stopped on the, on the way, camp, yeah, right? on the on the way to, on the way to Yorktown. So... Like, he wanted to be home. I can understand that. And he's not making, he wasn't making any money during the war. No. At least from he, yeah. drawing a salary exactly. as a general. Yeah, his his expenses were covered, which were not small, but he did not draw a salary. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to be home to enjoy his home. He wanted to be home to oversee his plantation and to try and get sort of his economic affairs in order. Mm-hmm. But he also had some concerns. He knew that um, his presence there would lend it credibility. And mm-hmm. so he didn't want to use basically his political capital or his one poker chip on the opportunity if it was going to fail. He, he sure. knew he could only really play that card once. And so he wasn't sure if, it, sure if this was the right time to play that card. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that he was concerned about is he had retired in a pretty public way at the end of the war. He had returned his commission. He had said he was going home. He had said he was retiring. And he was worried that the public would think that by coming back and trying to participate in reform, that people were going to think he was a hypocrite, mm-hmm. that people were going to think he had gone back on his word. Um, and so he had all of these. These were all sort of in his mind. And um, James Madison and Edmund Randolph really pulled a fast one on him, which is one of my <laughs> one of my yeah. favorite stories. They uh, Virginia selected a series of delegates that they were going to send to Philadelphia. And, of course, Washington was one of them because how do you have a Virginia delegation and not include Washington? They sure. were all approved. Um, and then Washington said no, and Edmund Randolph just – elected not to tell anyone that Washington had said no so that his name wouldn't be removed and no one else's name would be put in his place. Oh, very sneaky. Very sneaky. Um, How did that go down with old uh, GW then? (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't particularly thrilled about it, but while they were doing that, they also kept like working at him Mm -hmm. and kept saying, you have to be there, you have to be there, you have to be there. Oh, I forgot to mention, the one other reason he didn't want to go is because the Society of the Cincinnati was having their gathering as well in Philadelphia the same summer, and he had already said no. 
And so oh. he was worried that if he went after saying no, that he would add, he would insult all of these officers mm-hmm. that he had served with. And he cared about a lot as friends and as colleagues. And so he didn't want to insult them. So they were saying like, no, you have to come. Um, it won't succeed unless you're there. People at the society will completely understand because this is a very different issue and they want you there and they're encouraging you to be there. And so they kept at him. People were sending him letters saying, you have to go. It only will succeed if you're there. And so finally he was convinced. But he still didn't really want to go because um, if in his diaries there's a great story and Pauline Mayer is the one that I think describes this best when she's talking about his journey, he, he, he sets out to leave on a certain date, and about a week before, he learns that his mother is ill down in Fredericksburg. And so he goes down to see her, and he learns that reports of her illness are greatly sort of ex- expanded, and she's fine. Mm-hmm. So he comes back, and he could have met with his estate manager at the t- and, you know, done a quick tour of his different five different farms and left the next day. And instead, he spends, like, five days going to each farm, writing really extensive details about how things should be done. And basically he's dawdling. He's just procrastinating. He doesn't want to go. Um, Which is such a human experience that I think is really important to point out that even though he did serve whenever he was asked to, didn't mean he always wanted to. Mm -hmm. So he goes to Phil, he went to Philadelphia and he arrived in May and there wasn't yet a, quorum of delegates from all the states. So basically the Virginia delegates, which include people like James Madison and Edmund Randolph, they sit there and they're in cahoots for the next several days, planning their strategy, planning out what they want to do. And one of the big things they want to do is expand executive authority. Mm -hmm. Over the next several months, uh, Washington was immediately voted the president of the convention, obviously. And he either sat with the Virginia delegation or he sat on a raised chair in front of the room. If you go to Philadelphia, you can visit Independence Hall and see the room where they would have met, um, sitting and facing the rest of the delegates. And he never missed a session. He was there every day. He heard all of the debates about executive authority, about presidential power. Um, And one of the reasons I think it's possible that if we look at Article 2, and it's pretty short... I think there are two reasons. One, they were tired. It was hot. They wanted to go home. Um, You know, they just didn't want to keep battling it out. Two, they trusted Washington to figure out some of Mm -hmm. it. And three, it was probably pretty awkward to be talking about presidential authority with Washington sitting there staring at you. And everyone had sort of assumed that if this thing got passed, he was going to be... Oh, yeah. Everyone knew, and he knew. Yeah. So that's pretty awkward. Um, so he was there. And then after the day's sessions were over, he would then go out and he would socialize with Mm -hmm. all the delegates. So he would have dinner with them at the inn. He would go to, uh, local elites houses like Robert Morris would host the delegates Mm -hmm. frequently. He would go to the theater with them. He would listen to music with them. He would have tea with them. And those conversations inevitably would have covered the day's events and people's understandings of what certain clauses meant. And so basically what happened was throughout the course of the summer, various different proposals were submitted for executive councils or different sorts of advisory bodies that people thought would be helpful to the executive to provide advice and support. And they were all rejected, explicitly Mm -hmm. rejected. And instead, the delegates decided on two things. The president could request written advice from the department secretaries 
and the president could consult with the Senate, basically, on foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. So the terms of the Constitution say that the Senate will advise and consent on treaties, but everyone in the room understood that that meant that the Senate would be an advisory body. And we know that because during the ratification debates, when people said, oh, but, you know, who is going to advise the president? People would say the Senate. The Senate. The Senate will. So those were the things that Washington understood mm -hmm. were at the president's disposal when he left Philadelphia in September of 1787. And um, throughout the ratification debates, those ideas didn't change. So th those are in the back of his mind. And, and you know, you talked about, you know, you very famously, he doesn't, he only speaks one time in the convention to, to talk about apportionment, right? Correct. So we know he famously remains silent. Mm -hmm. um, we know that during his legislative days in the House of Burgesses, he was also fairly silent. Mm -hmm. But we also know, as you as you say, he was fairly active in the social scene. And so Very. probably, I think as you alluded to, that's where a lot of the business is getting done, at least on his end. Is, that, mm -hmm. is your assessment then that that's where he's he is um, giving his opinion or or at least helping to shape potential outcomes uh, at that point when he's you know listening, taking tea or listening to music or, or going to for a bowl of punch or something? <laughs> um, yes, I think he probably is a little bit more forthcoming with his ideas at that point. But also don't forget that he voted. So whenever yeah. the Virginia delegation would vote, he would vote. So people knew how he was voting mm -hmm. on matters. And uh, the votes were not secretive. They were not, you know, silent. They were not anonymous. And I think that one of the reasons that Washington was quiet and often didn't say anything was he had, he had no problem admitting that other people were smarter than he was mm -hmm. on certain issues. But he also knew that when he did say something, it had extra weight and it carried sure. extra weight. And I believe that he was willing to allow his vote to serve as that marker of mm -hmm. what his opinion was. So he, the Constitution passes, as we all know. Mm -hmm. He is elected unanimously as the first president. He is. Now he's got to figure this thing out. Because <laughs> you say Article 2 is very short. Article 1 is huge. You know, it's mm -hmm. the 18th century. So the, even though they want executive power, the legislature is, is you know, the, the most powerful branch in a lot of ways. But he, he needs to figure out how he's going to conduct himself. So one of the really interesting things I took from your article, and I want to talk about the process, about the relationship between his consultations with the Senate and mm -hmm. then him interpreting the Constitution. But it's almost struck me is that in, in our modern discourse, we were talking about, well, someone is a, an originalist or they are interpreting a living Constitution. What I took away from your article is that originalism went out the window almost immediately. And, yes. and people began, including Washington, began interpreting the Constitution as a kind of living document in response to their very real experiences on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's really important that most people don't appreciate with the Constitution is the people who wrote it said that it was imperfect mm -hmm. and that it was essentially a series of compromises that solved issues that needed to be solved and got enough votes on particular issues that they could cobble together the series of compromises. And they hoped that future generations would be able to solve issues better than they were able to solve them. Mm -hmm. They did not think of themselves as godlike figures or as the fountains of all knowledge. That was not their understanding. And 
they didn't know what challenges were going to face them and they didn't know what pressures were going to face them. And so Washington's governing philosophy was basically what best suits this particular crisis that Mm -hmm. I am dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so initially he really tries to stick to the letter of the law in the constitution. He requests written advice from his department secretaries and um, very quickly realizes that that is insufficient. And he, if anyone has, you know, when you exchange emails, sometimes you remember you meant to say something and you forgot and so you send another email. Mm -hmm. Or you say something and someone has a question because maybe the wording wasn't clear and so you write back and you have an exchange, but a lot can get lost in translation. Now imagine doing that with a quill and parchment. (laughs) And... If you make a mistake, you either have to cross it out or you have to start from scratch. And then you have to wait for the ink to dry. And then you have to wait for the parchment to get delivered. And then you have to wait for the person to respond and for that parchment to dry and then for it to get returned back to you. Now what happens if you have a follow-up question? Sure. That's really annoying. And so Washington quickly realized that uh, written advice was not going to be sufficient because the issues facing them were just really complex Mm -hmm. and they required a complex conversation. And so he quickly went to the process of he would send a letter, they would sometimes exchange a response, and then he would have individual consultations with his department secretaries. So that's sort of the department secretary start of the process. The Senate start of the process oh, is... Yeah. This is um, the fun one, too. Oh, this is so fun. I love this story. So <laughs> in the summer of 1789, Washington was planning to send commissioners to negotiate with representatives from North Carolina, South Carolina, and the Creek Nation. Mm-hmm. And there had been a lot of conflict and a lot of violence over white settler encroachment on Native land and then Native violence in response. And so... They were going to try and have a peace commission to solve this diplomatically and sign a new treaty. But Washington had never sent any sort of commission before. And so because it was a first, he was following the rules in the Constitution. He planned to meet with the Senate about this issue. So he was very responsible in how he organized this. He created a committee to discuss his meeting. He met with members of the Senate about where he would sit and where John Adams, who was the president of the Senate, would sit at the time. When he was there, uh, how he would be announced when he entered, what sort of information he should provide. So they tried to handle all of these details. Uh, Before his uh, arrival, he also shared with the Senate all of the previous existing treaties between Native American nations and the United States so that the Senate would have all of the information it Mm -hmm. might need. And on the day of the meeting, he also brought then-acting Secretary of War Henry Knox, who had been responsible for overseeing all these treaties and really was the person with the most knowledge of relations between Native Americans and the United States at the time. So Washington arrives on August 22nd and at about 11.30 in the morning at Federal Hall in New York City, which is where the seat of government was at the time. He has this address that he's written for the Senate and then a series of questions. He arrives, he hands the address to John Adams, John Adams reads the address, and none of the senators heard him. And if anyone's been in New York (laughs) City in August, it's incredibly hot. And so the, um, it was incredibly hot back then too. And so the senators had opened the windows to try and get some fresh air, and their chambers were on the first floor, and federal, but federal hall, see, was on Wall Street. And while 
Wall Street was not 21st century Wall Street. It was still quite loud. Yeah. And there were carriages and there were horses and there were people trying to sell their wares and there were conversations. And so it was incredibly loud and all of that noise drowned out John Adams. So they closed the windows. He read it again. And he was again met with silence. And that, I mean, that, sorry, did you say that John Adams read the address? That, yeah. So, I mean, that's like, it's kind of hard to drown that guy out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, the thing about John Adams is he was quite persistent, but he wasn't necessarily known for his oration abilities. Yeah, vocal oratory. Yeah. So we don't know how loud he was per se, but he wasn't loud enough to be heard. Yeah. At least the first time. Which much to his consternation, I would imagine. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so then the second time, uh, no one responded and some people shuffled their papers and some people avoided eye contact and it must've been quite awkward. Super awkward. Awkward silences. And eventually Senator William McClay stands up and suggests that they refer the issue to committee so that they can consider it in more detail and, and can Washington come back? Mm -hmm. And Washington was known for his composure until he wasn't. And... Uh, when he lost his composure, it was apparently quite intense. And in this moment, he absolutely lost it. And he stood up and he yelled, this defeats every purpose of my coming here. Now, keep in mind that this was the most famous person in the world, or at least in the United States at the time, and had a completely unvarnished reputation and was super tall and very imposing. And now he was mad at you. Yeah. And that must have been quite a moment. Right. And did, did he did he or did he not use a swear word? I've always heard. I haven't heard the swear word rumor, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, the Senate didn't take detailed minutes at the time. They sure. have a very limited journal. So one of the few records we have of this meeting is Senator William McClay's diary. His diary. So that's a little bit limited. Um, Washington eventually calmed down. He agreed to return the following Monday to get the committee's advice. But on his way out, he reportedly said, and I don't know if this is true, but he reportedly said that he would never again return to the Senate for advice. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that was true, he never returned. Yeah. So whether or not he said it, he meant it. This is first and only visit. First and only. I mean, he returned for certain other political things, but that was the only time he returned for mm-hmm. advice in that way. So, so what? I mean, let's look at this from the Senate's perspective for a second. I mean... It, is this in their minds sort of like, is this, what is this, king in parliament? Is this, didn't <laughs> we just get rid of this? Or what, what, what are we doing here? Well, I think that they, my guess is that it was a legislative body acting like a legislative body. Mm-hmm. And they refer things to committees and they take their time deliberating. And that's how it goes. And Washington had spent most of his leadership experience in a military capacity. Uh And as people who have been in the military know, if your superior officer asks you a question, you answer the darn question. (laughs) Yeah. And if someone says, please share your opinion, you share your opinion. Mm -hmm. And Washington was used to convening a council of war and asking his officers for opinions. And they debated them Mm -hmm. because that's what that was asked of them. And that process was very useful for Washington because it basically allowed him to stress test the different options. He could hear Mm -hmm. the different arguments. He could figure out what the weaknesses were. And then he could go back and make the decision in his own time and in his, you know, his private space. But that was a process he really liked. Mm -hmm. And you can see that he was treating the Senate in the same way because during the Revolutionary War, 
he would send a list of questions to his officers that would serve as the agenda for a council of war, and he brought a list of questions to the Senate. Mm -hmm. And he thought he had provided them with everything they needed to provide that opinion. Um, And they acted like Congress acts, and he said, that doesn't work for diplomacy. I need more immediate, efficient feedback and advice and support. And so he went looking elsewhere for it. So the Senate says, all right, this is this is fine. You know, we'll we'll put together a committee and we'll think about mm-hmm. this. You come back next week. You know, go go do something else for a while, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll let you, we'll let you know. Yeah. Washington says, "Well, I'm not coming back to this mm-hmm. crazy show," and so he goes back. And is it that? Does he open that act of Congress then and start to look at those provisions and say, you know, maybe if I just think about this in a more expansive way, I don't have to go back to that dreadful place ever again. So this is another one of those times where I really wish he wrote more down. Or maybe he wrote it down and Martha burned it. I don't know. Um, Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So, I mean, the problem is we have so many extraordinary documents from Washington's hand or from his presidency, but they're not always particularly revealing. Yeah. And that was intentional. Mm-hmm. Um So if you think about the timeline that I shared at the very beginning when I was talking about these acts of Congress... This meeting happens in August of 1789. Mm-hmm. He gets the acts of Congress in October-ish of mm-hmm. 1789 and makes those notes in the next couple of months. So it wasn't immediately thereafter, but it was not long thereafter. Yeah. And when he had already decided, this isn't going to work for me, um, I know that I'm going to need more than just written advice. Mm-hmm. And so then I think he takes a look and he says, well... This article gives me the authority to do these things, but does it require that I only do these things? Mm -hmm. And his conclusion, I argue in this article, is that the purpose of Article 2 is to create a strong, energetic presidency. And when I say energetic, I don't mean like go run five miles. I mean like (laughs) a president that could create policy and implement that policy and be a driving force Mm -hmm. behind the administration. And his understanding was that that was what this new government was supposed to be. And so if what was written in Article 2 did not best support that, he was going to find something that best supported that Mm -hmm. vision. That was the purpose. And so then when we look back at this notation that says President Powers, and it doesn't say required, Mm -hmm. like the other notation next to the annual address, that reveals a lot to us about how he was drawing this distinction. But it implies flexibility. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, in, in a way, he's almost kind of in, implicitly invented his own necessary and proper clause that, yes. uh, for for Article 2 in, in a lot of ways. Exactly. Um, and so what what do we see happen after that? After he, he sits down after that experience with the Senate, he begins to make these notations, mm-hmm. fits within the timeline, how do we see him begin to implement this expanded idea of presidential power? So he starts to explore some different options. He initially has almost sort of like a prime minister relationship with James Madison, mm-hmm. where James Madison will write a response, will write a letter from Washington to Congress, and then will write Congress's response back to Washington. Uh, their relationship starts to sour in 1790, 1791, as they really differ over administrative policy. Mm -hmm. So that relationship kind of goes away, and that option is off the table. Then he tries to bring in the Supreme Court to provide advice on some issues. 
and the Supreme Court really, John Jay is willing to provide individual advice, but as an institution, they really put on the brakes and say, no, this is not something we're comfortable doing. So that doesn't work. The vice president is sort of immediately a no-go because John Adams had squandered a lot of his political capital during the title controversy, which had occurred early on when he wanted a very long and ostentatious title for the president that was like his highness and mighty protector of the American liberties. I'm, I'm butchering that. That's not yeah. exactly what it was, but I'm not. This The concept is, is correct. Yeah. He wanted something quite extreme. Very glorious title. Very glorious. Um, and that was very embarrassing for Washington. So their relationship as sort of co-conspirators never got off the ground. So instead, he's sort of left with the department secretaries, and he starts by calling those individual consultations that I mentioned, which he's doing as early as January Mm -hmm. 1790, and uh, starts to increase those. Then in April of 1791, things start to sort of take off. He goes on his, Washington goes on his southern tour to the southern states, and he knows that he's really not going to be available for quick correspondence. Mm -hmm. And he says to the secretaries, if anything comes up that is urgent, meet together as a group, make a decision, and send it to me, and I will approve it. So Hamilton sort of, you know, I'm doing the devious finger machination. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Hamilton says, okay. Jefferson's like, oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) So something, you know, an issue comes up with a loan, and Hamilton convenes all the secretaries. And and actually, he also includes John Adams at Washington's insistence. Mm -hmm. It's the one and only group meeting that John Adams attends. And uh, they make a decision. They send it on to Washington. And about uh, six months later, on November 26th, 1791, when Washington is back in Philadelphia, they, he convenes the first cabinet meeting. And that, deba- that date is really important, not because uh, that cabinet meeting was all that interesting in its substance, but because it was two and a half years into Washington's administration yeah. before he convened a cabinet meeting. Mm-hmm. And most people think, oh, well, you know, of course there was going to be a cabinet, and it appeared right away, and we have a cabinet now. There was always a cabinet, and that's really not at all how it worked. In fact, Washington, I think, really tried almost every option he could think of before going to that option Mm -hmm. and didn't convene the meeting um, for a really long time. Yeah. And so that's that's really important to note. Um, So he has that meeting in November. He has another one in December. He has about five in 1792, and then in 1793, he has 51 meetings. And uh, most of those have to do with the neutrality crisis. France had declared war on Great Britain, and the cabinet was trying to figure out how to stay out of Mm -hmm. it and how to get foreign powers to uh, respect their neutrality. And um, that's really important because not only are, are they meeting regularly, They start to call their meetings cabinet meetings, so they're understanding that they're creating this new institution and describing it as such. But they're meeting in Washington's private study up to five times per week for several hours at a time in the summer in Philadelphia. We know it was a very hot summer because there was a yellow fever, a really bad yellow fever outbreak that fall. The room was only about 15 by 21 feet. It was filled with furniture, like absolutely stuffed. And there were five very large men in there, and there was no air conditioning. 
And Jefferson and Hamilton hated each other. Mm -hmm. They already hated each other before these 51 meetings. There was already just a lot of heat in that room. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So imagine, you know, everyone's been in a meeting that they are bored or they feel like it's an unimportant meeting or it's someone they don't like. Imagine being stuck in those meetings five times a week for several hours with no air conditioning. And it just becomes this crazy hothouse of political tensions. Mm -hmm. And that's really when we start to see the... Uh, rise of partisan tensions and the sort of early beginnings of political movements. Mm -hmm. And so the cabinet is really at the forefront of all of those issues. Well, on April the 1st, 2020, folks will be able to read all about that and more when your book comes out, because that's, that's really at the heart of your book. It is. It is. And so you're, you're going to come back and and talk about that then. I will. But uh, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is, what was it actually like to work with a document or a a bound volume with Washington's annotations that few had seen since before 2012? I imagine you were one of the first to get a a crack at it. Well, you were the first, right? Is that that fair to say? Well, they didn't let me touch it. Yeah. Um, It's yeah, how did that va- process work? It's too work. valuable. It's yeah. too valuable. So I did get to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the library brings it out every now and again. Um, it is... Out of the vault within out the vault. The, out of the very secret yeah. hiding place. Um, it is It is a very valuable, very once-in-a-lifetime document, and so they have to be very careful of protecting it, yeah. and I totally yeah. get that. Sure. They do have wonderful reproductions that actually you can buy in the gift shop, which are really, really cool, and really great oh. scans online. Um, so you can own your very own Acts of Congress, complete <laughs> with its notations. Yeah. Um, and I did it yourself. <laughs> uh, you can compare Washington's handwriting or try and mimic it if you want. Yeah. Um, it, it was kind of a crazy, it, it is always a surreal moment when you're holding a document or even a, a replica of a document and you can see what people have written. It definitely makes that history come alive in a way that, doesn't otherwise. Mm -hmm. And to think about the process, you know, it's one thing to pick up a pencil now, but the extra effort of having to get the ink just right, because he didn't have splatters, he didn't have, you know, blotches, the amount of effort that it takes to get the ink just right to do the notations is, is something that is special and different. And so seeing those things, and, and I had, I saw these before I had really definitively like figured out what my dissertation argument was Mm -hmm. and I saw them and it just blew my mind because and then I was like looking around like has anyone else seen these and we just keep this can I hide them (laughs) because and and you know the amazing thing about them is people people share them online they show pictures and they say isn't this so cool this is so amazing Washington wrote in his book and there are these notations and no one, to my knowledge, has said, like, what do they actually mean? Yeah. Why um, does it matter? Why does it matter? Why did he write these things? What does that tell us about the fact? He wasn't doodling them on, like, the Sunday Times crossword. He was doodling them on the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not a, a napkin you're going to throw away. Yeah. Um, so I felt incredibly fortunate that no one beat me to that punch. Victory. Victory, indeed. <laughs> well, and nowadays... I mean, you've written a book about the first president. You've written this article about his interpretation of the Constitution. Now you work at the White House Historical Association. So there was no White House in in George Washington's time, but Mm -hmm. there was 
by his uh, by the time of his successor, Mr. Adams. Um, but what what do you do at the White White House Historical Association, and um, how does your work on Washington and his world inform that work there? Sure. So I am a historian at the White House Historical Association. The association was founded in 1961 by uh, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy to preserve the history of the White House, to share the history, to promote education about all of the historic things that have happened in this space, but also to make it more accessible to the American people. So before Mrs. Kennedy came along, it was really up to the First Lady and the President, their discretion, how much history or how many historic pieces they wanted to keep in the White House. If Mm. they wanted to get rid of all of it, they could. And they could bring in all new stuff. And, you know, some administrations, some families were much more historically inclined and wanted to have portraits in China and others really didn't. And so she started an effort to acquire historical items, to bring them into the White House and to really create a state of the art museum space on the first floor that showcased the breadth of American history. Mm -hmm. So today, if you go through the White House, you will see all the different staterooms, you will see portraits of the presidents and first ladies, but you will also see paintings that depict all of the different landscapes and different moments in history, but also the different people in American history. So there are artists that are women and African Americans and Asian Americans and everything we can think of to try and really show top to bottom, left to right, the full 360 American experience. Mm And um, the association has been a supporter in that effort. Uh, The association pays for the presidential portraits and the uh, state China sets and acquisitions of really important art pieces. So, for example, uh, during the Obama administration, the association purchased the painting by Alma Thomas, who was the first African-American female artist that was featured in the White House. Oh, cool. Um, and so it's an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. And it's ever-evolving. And so my job as a historian is to know that history and share that history, but also then to continue to figure out whose story haven't we told. Mm-hmm. So who worked in the White House? Who built the White House? Who was there that maybe that story hasn't been told but should be because we really think of it as the people's house and it belongs to all of the American people and so it needs to represent all of those different stories. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of work on trying to uncover or share those stories as well as things like um, state dinners and other big diplomatic or domestic moments that may have occurred at the White House. So this is a, this is a really significant public history gig then. It is. It's very much a public history position. Um, I I very much enjoy that aspect of it. It's great to be able to speak to every type of public audience you can possibly imagine, mm-hmm. everything from elementary school children to teachers to historians to people who are just really passionate and interested about it. And um, I think from my perspective, having a background in George Washington is actually really informative because he set so many precedents that we don't even know until you start to dig into them, Mm -hmm. including things like um, a lot of the design elements of the White House. So, um, yeah. So for example, uh, when they were, when they were, they, he and the commissioners decided to host a competition to decide which design was going to be selected. Mm -hmm. 
and he asked James Hoban, whose work he had encountered in Charleston, South Carolina, to come up and visit with him in Philadelphia. And lo and behold, James Hoban's design a few weeks later was selected. And we don't have any record of that conversation, but I suspect he said, like, I want these things, put them in your design. Mm -hmm. Hoban complied and his design was selected. How about that? Um, One of the things that I think probably went in that design was when Washington moved into Robert Morris's home in Philadelphia, he had bow windows added to the state dining room Mm. and the state drawing room. And those were, for people who don't know that term, they're basically like half circles that were added to the end of the rooms to make them larger and to provide more light and more windows. Well, there are oval drawing rooms in on three floors of the White House, and I suspect it was because Hoban went to visit Washington and he liked these windows mm-hmm. and, you know, wanted something similar. So little things like that, you can really find the, the root in Washington if you look into it. That's really cool. So, um, well, I would be remiss if I did not mentioned that we have a annual ornament and each year we started with Washington and have been working our way up and this year is our Eisenhower year. So we have a lot of public programming mm-hmm. on Eisenhower and the ornament is a um, is a helicopter and that is because Eisenhower was the first president to use the helicopter in office. He was a big supporter of uh-huh. innovation and technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very concerned about uh, showing any sort of impartiality towards any one branch of service. So he would alternate between the Army helicopter and the Marine Corps helicopter because it hadn't been designated to mm-hmm. just the Marine Corps yet. So he would go back and forth. Um, he had his pilot's license, so he would sometimes fly it when he was going home to Gettysburg or over to Camp David. But oh, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. but um, Mamie didn't like f- flying in it when he was... Uh, captaining it, so she insisted on taking the car. <laughs> um, and on the ornament, we have uh, five stars on one side for his rank as general, and then the presidential seal on the other. So that is sort of our big initiative this mm-hmm. year. Um, and then the Rubenstein Center, which is our history and education and digital library center, we are um, undertaking a big initiative on slavery in the president's neighborhood. And so our goal is to tell the story, to uncover the lives and tell the stories of the people who built the White House, who lived in the White House, and who worked in the neighborhood. And we there's a, a lot of great scholarship on mm-hmm. the subject already that we are relying on, but also trying to continue to find more names and stories of those people and bring their stories to life. And so that is a, a very much an ongoing and a long-term project. Well, that's terrific. And so I guess you know, if you like Ike... Or if you're interested in who built the White House in Washington, the White House Historical Association is the place for you. Yes, yes. And other things, we are always happy to answer White House questions and um, can always tell a good White House pet story as well, if that's your your go-to. Yeah. Well, Dr. Trevinsky, uh, I think we should conclude here. Of course, we're going we're gonna to have you back for the book when that comes out. Thank you. It will be a delight to be back. Well, we would be delighted to have you, and I think you know, we ought to go get some toast now. I think we should go get some toast for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. 
If you'd like to support this podcast as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks and see you next time.